I'm going to begin by reading um, Psalm 19 uh, this morning. And I want to begin in the middle uh, at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commandments of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So that's magnificent, isn't it? Psalm 19, celebrating the written word of God. Psalm 119 uh, has 176 verses celebrating the law of God, the word of God. Oh, how I love your law. Uh, the reason I uh, bring that up is we talk today about feminism and the effect of you know, biblical manhood and womanhood and the effect of feminism in the church and how we can minister the, this uh, truth in this area. I have to just confess that sometimes I've struggled and I don't always, haven't always acted like I believe that God's teaching on gender and gender-based roles is delightful. It's actually one of the last things I enjoy teaching on. I mean, I think every teacher, every human likes to be liked, likes to be thought well of, likes to have people smiling and happy and all that. That's normal. This topic doesn't do that for the teacher. Um, And yet I, I saw as we were struggling just historically in this church when I first got here, we struggled on the topic of gender and authority. That was kind of the battleground that we fought over. The real issue is whether we would follow the Bible, period, that was the war, but the battle was gender, gender roles in the church. And uh, I remember just feeling a kind of groaning in my spirit as we just kept walking through this topic. And I, I wanted to teach on John 3.16 or something, you know, God is love or something nice. And, and, but the Lord convicted me and said, you know, you're actually your demeanor and your attitude isn't any different from those that are denying these truths. You wish it would just go away. The fact is, my word is good food. It's good for men, it's good for women, it's good for the church. Just teach it. Feed the people. And so for me, that was uh, freeing and convicting all at once. So I thought I would begin with Psalm 19 and just remind us that the Word of God is delightful and pure and radiant and produces good things. So let's talk uh, today about biblical manhood and womanhood and specifically gender-based roles in the church and in home in particular and how society uh, has moved so vigorously far from that Uh, almost, I would say, not almost, I think we're at a point of absurdity on gender in our culture. It's just getting ridiculous. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, someone handed me this week the fact that Merriam-Webster added the non-binary pronoun they to the dictionary. I'm not sure what the rules of the road are anymore. I don't know. Imagine if you had plural children at home and one of them was sick and you use the plural they to refer to the one. I, I think that's just not clear. Let's just start with a lack of clarity. Are all your children sick? Do they all have the plague or just one of them? Um, But this is what it says. Uh, They is a liberating pronoun for many non-binary individuals who identify as genders other than male and female. What? What genders other than male and female? Now that's where I'm, I'm saying, I believe Satan is laughing at the human race. He's laughing at us. I think that idolatry that I'm about to preach on is him laughing at us. Look what he can make us do. Look what he can make us bow down to. You know, uh, statues made to look like animals, birds, and reptiles. 
Romans chapter 1. He can make us bow down to that. And so for me, uh, as an insight that happened a number of years ago, and it continues to be helpful, all sin is insanity. Salvation is a therapeutic work to move us from insanity to sanity, from weird, faulty thinking to pure right thinking, that Jesus came not to, uh, to, uh, for the healthy but for the sick. And so in saying that there's a healing work, I'm not denying that there's also a resurrection work. I look on it as the same thing. Uh, dead people can't do anything well. I don't know if you noticed that, all right? So uh, whereas sick people can't do some key things well, it's all the same thing. It's the same language. By raising us from the dead spiritually, he has healed us. By removing our blindness, he's healed us. By removing our deafness, he's healed us. So it's a therapeutic work. And in so doing, he brings us to health. He brings us to rightness. Therefore, we can look back then at sin and say it was essentially insanity. It was essentially irrational. I think we're going to see when we see God face to face, we'll realize how insane it was to fight him. I mean, at every level. Uh, the last verse that I'm going to preach on today, 1 Corinthians 10.22, says, Do you really want to arouse the Lord to jealousy by idolatry? Are we stronger than him? Now think about that. <laughs> That's quite a, quite a question that Paul asks. Are you stronger than the Lord? So don't fight him. And the same thing, are you wiser than the Lord? Are you more loving, etc.? We're going to see just how insane it was to not just simply love him and worship him and obey him. All right, so let's talk about gender. Uh, and let's go back to the truth. There are two genders, all right? doesn't matter what the government forms say these days. doesn't matter what the schools are teaching. None of, the, none of those things change it. So look at your handout there. If you didn't get a handout, I brought some of them from, uh, a number of you brought from last week, but there are a few extras. In the beginning, uh, someone read for us, if you would, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. All right, so what I want to say, there's so many things I could say about that. One is that is not going anywhere. It was true at the beginning. It's true today. It'll be true to the end. And so secondly, that it's beautiful. It's delightful. One of the basic premises we should take here is that it's, it's a wonderful thing for a man to be a man. And it's a wonderful thing for a woman to be a woman. Uh, we should delight in that, and we should delight in, at every level. I'm very, very glad that my wife is the woman that she is, that she is a woman. Um, I hope that she's glad that I'm the man that I am. Um, I know she's glad that I'm a man. Uh, so from the very beginning, God created man in his own image, and uh, male and female. In the beginning of our own lives, our gender was assigned to us. This is part of the problem is we have no choice in the matter. And choice is an idol of our age. The ability to make choices to, you know, the inalienable right to pursue happiness as we define it has become an idol. We need to be very aware of that as Christians. Uh, that I should get to do whatever makes me happy, whatever I want to do. And so there's an idol that we're pursuing of choice. We don't get to choose on this. But some people are saying, oh yeah, watch me. I can choose my own gender. And that's what's going on. But we don't have a choice, and that's really from, it's from, uh, from the moment of conception. So our gender colors our entire experience of worlds in way, world in ways that are almost incalculable and beyond discerning. I don't really know how my masculinity affects the way I look at the world, but I know that it does. And I don't know that how my wife's femininity affects the way she looks at the world, but I know that it does. These things are very hard to define. 
Um, now let's talk about uh, a theme that's grown and developed in terms of my own premarital counseling. When I do premarital counseling, I always begin with Matthew 19, Jesus teaching not on divorce, but on marriage. He, he addresses the question of divorce by going to marriage. Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? Don't think for a minute that Jesus wasn't aware of gender and wasn't aware of issues that eventually led in our culture to gay marriage and things like that. Jesus established very clearly two genders. It's not like Jesus was on the sidelines on this or would have been supportive of gay rights or any of that. He's very clear. In the beginning, the Creator made them male and female, Genesis 1, and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, Genesis 2. What I've noticed is that Genesis 1 has a very egalitarian way of talking about the genders. Um, there's no gender-based distinctions at all in Genesis 1, except the names, male and female. Uh, but there are gender-based distinctions in Genesis 2. And so what I, the way I say both are equally biblically valid, they're both important, but I think what we share is much more important than and how we're different. Um, so I think as we look at it, we share in Genesis 1 equality in being created in the image of God. So the most important thing about a man, a human, is that he is created in the image of God from Genesis 1. The most important thing about a woman, a female, is that she is created in the image of God, also Genesis 1. There's no distinction. And the significance of that is more than we can say. So what would, what would you say is the significance of us being created in the image of God? Almost immeasurable, too. The gap between humans and animals and rocks and sticks and, you know, insects is immeasurable. And so being in the image of God, it's something that theologians have taken a lot of time talking about on uh, the Latin imago dei, that kind of thing. The, the fact that we are like God in some key ways. And, you know, we can begin to think how that is, but I think it has to do with intelligence, imagination, creativity, uh, also the role we play, let them rule over the earth. So we kind of, we have a rulership over the earth. It's similar, it's godlike. Uh, the problem in Genesis 3 is that we sought to usurp absolute power, absolute authority over the earth. That could not be. When God says in the Garden of Eden, you are free to eat from any tree but this one, he's saying, I'm in charge of you. And when they went ahead and ate from that tree, when Adam and Eve ate from that tree, they said, no, you're not. So that's the essence of it. It's rebellion against God's rulership over the earth. However, back to the idea of us being the image of God, we're given a godlike role in the world to rule it and subdue it, that kind of aspect. Again, though, in Genesis 1, given to both male and female. Now, the image of God was significantly marred by the fall in Genesis 3. Uh, the damage is huge, but it's not complete and total. We are still in the image or the likeness of God. And so James talks about the mouth in James 3, the tongue, and he says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Now, cursing or speaking hard words against someone. What James says is you should not do that because the person you're cursing is in the likeness of God or the image of God. So that's after the fall. What that means is still, despite the fact that we're sinful, we ought not to curse another human being. So what that means is that, the, that males and females, men and women, should have respect for each other. I mean, the least we could say from James 3 is we should not curse each other, um, but you know, expand it out to say we should treat each other with respect and dignity and kindness because we have worth in that we are created in the image of God. We are equally commanded to be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and 
increase the number or multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living creature that moves along the ground. So that was a mandate given to uh, biological multiplication. Uh, the question of gender in heaven is difficult to answer, and I won't. I, one thing I've learned as I'm writing a book on heaven, I, I just spoke at a conference a week or two ago, and I got so many random questions. Will this be in heaven? Will that be in heaven? And I'm just going again and again to the big, I don't know. If there's just no scripture under my feet, I'm not going to say. One thing I do know, there's no marriage in heaven, not like that. Uh, men and women aren't going to pair off in heaven in that exclusive one flesh relationship that we have on earth that will be like the angels in heaven. Beyond that, I can't go. Uh, but for now, in this world, God wants more people, and he uh, chooses marriage and biological reproduction uh, to be the way by which he would get that countless multitude from every tribe, language, people, and nation that would eventually stand before the throne worshiping God. It's an amazing thing that we get to be a partnership in partnership with God in the creation of eternal beings who will spend eternity, um, you know, hopefully through the gospel at the throne of God. Uh, so equally commanded to fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over it. Genesis 1.28, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Again, no distinctions at all between male and female on those tasks. However, in Genesis 2 uh, and beyond, there are gender-based roles. Adam was formed first, then Eve. This is significant in the Apostle Paul's reasoning for male leadership in the local church. He says in 1 Timothy 2, 12 and 13, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man. She must be silent for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So whether you think the order of creation was important or not, Paul thinks it's important. And the most important thing we have to understand about scripture is that the human writer is writing on behalf of Almighty God. So whatever Isaiah or Jeremiah or Paul or Peter or John is saying, it's not that important who they were as men, what they're, as they're writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, whatever they assert as they're writing scripture, God asserts. And so to God, it's important that Adam was formed first, then Eve. Therefore, like at weddings, when we read in Genesis 2, it's not good for the man to be alone. I generally, uh, I think in my mind, I don't always say it, but I do in counseling. We should think of it this way. It's not good for the man to remain alone. But it was good for the man to be alone for a while. Because God was establishing male leadership there in the home, in the family first, but then Adam uniquely over the entire human race. He is the head of the human race. And uh, him, sadly, representing us at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sinned on our behalf. And in Adam, we all fell into sin. Um, but it is significant for Paul's reasoning that Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's why men should lead in the local church. Interestingly, also, both male and female are named Adam in the Hebrew, or named for his name. In Genesis 5, 1 and 2, it says, When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. So they're both called by his name, which I think probably is some biblical support for a woman taking her husband's name at a wedding. But uh, in Genesis 5, just the general word Adam is used for, for the man, Adam, but also for the human race as a whole. Also, as I mentioned, Adam was the head of the human race, not Eve. So Adam represented us at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, just as Christ later represented us at the cross. So here we have the very significant doctrine of federal headship. And what that means is that our head, Adam, the first Adam, represented us at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and sinned on our behalf. Now, my kids, at least one of them, thought this was really unfair, that we were blamed for some dude's sin that lived so long ago. 
you know, and uh, it, it seems very unfair, but it's amazing the parallelism that the Lord sets up between the first Adam and the second Adam. All right, so we have here, could someone read this, 1 Corinthians 15, 21, 22. So there's a parallel between Adam and Christ. He's the second Adam. He is our representative. He was the perfect man. He was the perfect, he was what humans should have been, fully obedient, gladly obedient to his father, living in perfect submission to the laws of God. He represented us at a second tree, the cross. And so to my child that said, it's not fair, I wasn't there, I wanted to go with that old spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? You weren't there either. And so just how we weren't there at the first tree, we weren't there at the second, and there's a principle of someone representing us, standing for us, taking our punishment, receiving the wrath of God, also representing us at, at Judgment Day with his own righteousness and saying he or she is one of mine. And we stand in Christ's righteousness. So there's a beautiful parallelism there. So we all fell into sin in Adam, not in Eve. She's not mentioned in Romans 5. She's not mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15. Not saying in any way she's not significant. I'm just saying we don't believe in federal mothership there. She doesn't represent us. Also, I believe chronologically that Adam sinned before Eve did. Um, just and she ate the fruit first, but he was there and he was told to protect the garden in Genesis 2 and he didn't. And so by a sin of omission, by not speaking up, by not breaking off that conversation between the serpent and Eve, he failed. So I think even chronologically sin before uh, Eve did, because we all know sins of omission are valid sins. They're actually most of our sins are sins of omission. Once you get to walk with the Lord for a while, just things you should have done you didn't do. So at any rate, that's a significant aspect. Also, Adam named the animals, and he also named the woman or his wife twice. Um, so the animals come and, and are named by Adam, but for, no, for him no suitable help was found. And then uh, God formed Adam, uh, sorry, formed Eve out of the body of Adam and brought her to the man. And this is what he said. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, it's really important that we realize, first of all, his source of information must have been God because he was asleep at the time. Um, and so how did he know what she was? How did he know where she came from except that God instructed him? And so it's that same pattern that we have now. And I'm, I'm speaking not in any way facetiously. A man may say, I don't understand my wife. I don't understand her thinking. I don't understand what's going on, etc." Well, he should ask God because God understands who she is. He understands what he intended. And so in prayer, he should uh, ask, just as Adam originally, he didn't ask, he didn't know to ask probably, but God said, this is where she came from. There's no other way he could have known this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. But then he takes this role of leadership of naming her woman for she was taken out of man. And then in the next chapter, after the fall, after sin, uh, we have Genesis 3.20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. So there's a sense of prophetic, a prophetic role that she has to play. And it begins that lineage that eventually, you know, from, from Luke's gospel, uh, genealogy leads to Christ. Um, and so ultimately the process of childbearing will bring the second Adam, Jesus, into the world. Uh, I don't know that Adam knew all that or understood all that at that time, but he saw down the road uh, a hopeful title for his wife, named her Eve. Now, Eve's role was submissive to Adam's. Uh, Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the word helper implies a submissive role that implies I'm here to help you in the task you're called to do. That task was given to both of them in Genesis 1, but then there's a uh, gender-based specialization that happens in chapter 2. 
And so we're going to get to this soon in Corinthians, God willing, but 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9. Man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Now verse 9, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. I can hardly think of a statement more offensive to secular feminism than that one. Uh, that one's not going anywhere. It's just going to be straight offensive to people that have feministic views. But there is a, a sense in which the woman was made for him and to help him. I think that I would say woman was not, uh, man was not made for woman, but woman for man lines up with Genesis 2.18. I'll make a helper suitable for him. I think the word for and helper probably go together. Now in Christ, not only at creation, originally in creation, but also at redemption, the equality of the sexes is reestablished as well and renewed. So we have in Galatians 6, uh, sorry, 3, 26 to 29. I would love someone to read that for us too. One of the beautiful things about Scripture is how, um, you know, in terms of interpretation, Scripture interprets Scripture. So all assertions and, and statements and, and words in Scripture have to fit into a network of truths that we've learned in other places. We do not believe that Galatians 3 is totally obliterating gender-based distinctions at all. That would make Paul contradict himself in other places. Um, nor should we fail to see that a complete obliteration of gender as anything uh, of significance leads to homosexuality and leads also to the absurdity of questioning gender at all. That is not what's going on in Galatians 3. What we are saying is that these distinctions uh, that we see, <coughs> racial distinctions, let's say, uh, you know, between Jews and, and Greeks, uh, gender-based distinctions, etc., do not mean anything when it comes to redemption. Every human being has sinned. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All human beings that are justified are just, justified the same way. They, get, they receive the same gift of grace, the same imputed righteousness from Christ, and they have equal standing in Christ as redeemed people. That's what Paul's saying here. And if you understand the context of Galatians, where he's dealing with the circumcision issue and Jew-Gentile and basically the statements being made by the Judaizers that the Gentiles have to become Jews in order to be saved, he's saying, no, they don't need to become Jews in order to be saved. Those ceremonial laws are done. That's what he's saying there. We're not obliterating gender. But what we are saying is that we need to recognize um, brothers and sisters in Christ as equal heirs with us of the gift of life. That's the language of 1 Peter 3. Husbands, <clears throat> verse 7, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives or live with them according to knowledge is another translation. Understand who they are. Um, I think that fits into the comment I made a minute ago where you say, I don't really understand my wife the way I should. So then ask God. But, um, you know, live with your wife in an understanding way or be considerate according to knowledge and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Um, I don't know exactly what Paul, what, sorry, what Peter means by the weaker partner, but there's some aspect of, of fragility in a woman that a man needs to understand. Um, and also uh, that she is an heir with him of the gracious gift of life. In other words, we're going to the same heaven, all of us. It uh, doesn't matter what our gender is, our racial background, whatever. If we are redeemed in Christ, we're going to the same heaven and we will understand the perfect oneness. By the way, I don't want to go too fast over the Galatians 3 statement, you are all one in Christ. That's an amazing statement. And it's pat patterned after the Trinity. It's mysterious. It's deep and rich. How you can maintain um, personal identity and still be perfectly one. And, and that, that comes from the mystery of the Trinity, where you have three persons. The theologians tell us we can say persons. The first person of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Perfectly one, 
and yet identifiable person so that they can have a relationship, they can talk to each other, they can make decisions together. So the Trinity is a mystery far beyond our ability to comprehend, but it is also a pattern of our oneness in Christ, that a multitude greater than anyone could count, none of them will lose their identities, but we will be perfectly one. What that means is we'll agree with each other about everything. I mean, we will. We will absolutely think the same way in heaven. We will love the same things and hate the same things. We'll love righteousness and hate wickedness equally together, just like Jesus. And we will, we will be perfectly one in heaven. Now, the more we can be one here on earth, the better. The more we can display that kind of loving unity, it's the press of so many uh, verses in the Bible. Philippians seems to be like this it's central issue is that they would you know, think alike and be one and present a, a united church to the Philippian unbelievers. So the unity that we'll have, we're all one in Christ Jesus. All right, so uh, however, that oneness does not obliterate gender-based roles in the church and in the home. Um, and this is, this is just something we need, to, we need to embrace. We are equally heirs of heaven. We're equally redeemed. We're equally significant, equally in the image of God, equally beloved, etc. But there are still gender-based roles. Um, so we're coming to this in, in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, but someone read this for us, 1 Corinthians 11, 3. So as I prepared the sermons on the head, head coverings issue coming up in 1 Corinthians 11, I decided to break it apart into two sermons and do basically an entire sermon on that one verse to try to understand what Paul means there and then walk through all of the complexities of 1 Corinthians 11 exegetically. And there are many. It's a hard passage to, to try to understand all the details, what the, what the covering is, the head covering, what is he requiring, how does he argue, what does it mean because of the angels, I mean, all of these things. We'll do our best to walk through all that, but it's just too much work for one sermon. The central issue, though, that we need to hear is in verse 3, and that there is a gender-based submission, a headship and submission relationship. We're going to go through how uh, people have worked a long, hard time on the word head and uh, have different views on it, but we'll talk about that in due time. But I, th I think it's pretty clear, at least to me, and I think uh, there's a good example of this also in Ephesians, that headship means one in authority over. There's an authority aspect here. Um, we also see this in marriage. There's an overall principle there, headship and submission as a principle, that gender matters when it comes to certain roles in society. And then uh, it matters clearly in marriage. Uh, it says in Ephesians 5, Verse 22 to 24, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So whatever we think the word head means, kephale, it is the reason why she should submit. So after a while, you just stop, frankly, playing games on what headship means and just say clearly authority, and that's the reason for her submission. Uh, and her submission would be a subset of her submission to Christ. She does it because Christ wants her to do it, and she does it like she does to Jesus. There is a clear difference between her husband and Jesus. Jesus is God. Her husband isn't. Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood for her sins. Her husband didn't. But there's a parallelism set up uh, in that her submission to her husband's authority is similar to her overarching submission to Christ. Then a uh, husband is told, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So there's a parallel set up there as well. So his love for his wife would be similar to the love that Christ showed for his bride, the church, and dying for her. Now let's circle back to the issue of male leadership in the church. Uh, this verse is one of the key verses. There are others. But in 1 Timothy 2, 12 and 13, it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. 
for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So let's just talk about that verse. There's, you know, don't go on and read what, what's below it. We'll get to that in a minute. But it's vital for us to just understand what Paul's saying. First of all, when he says, I do not permit, he's saying, I forbid, we would, we would just say, well, go ahead. We'll just keep driving until we come to a stop sign. If there is a stop sign, we need to stop if we're going to be submissive to God-ordained authority. This is such a stop sign. So we would not assume that women can't lead in the church unless there were scriptural indications. And this is a clear indication or prohibition. Secondly, we cannot say that it was based on culture or something going on in Ephesus there in 1 Timothy or something like that because of the reasoning that he gives. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Neither can we say that that male leadership in the local church is tied to um, sin. It was uh, punishment or something like that. So that as my theology professor, who was an egalitarian at Gordon-Conwell, in all other respects a great teacher, but in this one, just did a bad job, honestly. He doesn't do a good job exegetically. The key, the key with systematic theology is it's all rooted in Scripture. It's all rooted in text of Scripture. You've got to do your work. You've got to do good exegetical work. And if there's some passage of Scripture that your theology doesn't answer, that's a major problem. It should cause you to go back and pray and think some more. And he had no good answers for this. He just said, well, I know it doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean that women can't teach her own children. It doesn't mean women can't teach women. It's like, well, that's not what it's saying. It, it says that women can't teach men in the context of the local church. It's not really that hard to understand. But there was just a desire oppressed to be egalitarian there, and he was, doing his, uh, he was going in that direction. But some of the things that are said is that it came because of the fall. Genesis 3, because of sin. And you remember in the curse of the woman, it says, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbearing. And your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So that kind of tyrannical rule of men over women was part of the curse. That, that's how the reasoning goes. And then they bring in the Charles Wesley Christmas song, you know, uh, Joy to the World, Far As the Curse is Found, etc. And so now the curse has been overturned, and we have egalitarianism. Well, that's not how, that doesn't line up with this text. This text doesn't, doesn't in this verse, does not mention... Um, sin. It doesn't, as the verse continues, uh, Adam was not the one deceived, but the woman was completely deceived. That's what the text says. So it does go on into Genesis 3. But I'm just zeroing in on this statement. The reason is the sequence of creation. Adam was formed first, then Eve. So it's a timeless ordering. Timeless ordering. Furthermore, and this is so important for understanding this, because some strange things are happening in the evangelical world, even recently on this topic. All right? It has to do with Beth Moore, I think, preaching on Mother's Day, I think, or something like that. I don't know when it was, but also with social media, there's lots of chirping that goes on, I guess tweeting that goes on or whatever, <laughs> and it just goes on and on. It's very discouraging. You read it, and it's like, you know, just the problem is you just don't get that feedback loop of facial expression so that you can tone your rhetoric back, and you start saying some really hurtful things. So there's just right ways and wrong ways to disagree. There's right ways and wrong ways to talk together about things. But on Twitter, you can just, well, they're called Twitter bombs. You can just bomb people and say things that are so hurtful. But let's set all that aside. The issue of Beth Moore preaching a sermon on Sunday morning is significant on the gender um, role in the church issue. And this is the key text. Paul says, Paul, I believe, makes two prohibitions here. All right. The reason I, I say that is because of the structure of the Greek sentence. If I were to translate it more accurately and more awkwardly, not for English style, but just it says, to teach, I do not permit a woman, neither to have authority a man, she must be silenced, like that. But, but the thing is that the two infinitives, to teach, 
to have authority are separated. They're not put together. It's not authoritative teaching. It's teaching or authority or leadership. Both of those things are prohibited because Adam was formed first. That's Paul's logic, okay? What's happening with J.D. Greer, who's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, I think they're coming out with a policy statement, Summit Church is on this, that's gonna probably just do what he's been doing the last five years, which is that he believes that women can preach as long as they're doing it under the authority of the elders. The problem with that is that they don't have a banner over her head while she's preaching. I am preaching under the authority of the elders. Somebody comes in, like in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's concerned about an unbeliever coming into the church and everybody speaking in tongues, but there's no interpretation. You know that passage? And he said, he's going to think you're out of your minds. It'd be better if they prophesied, he says. So he's concerned about how it all looks to the outsider. All right? And so, therefore, there's no way that the fact that she's preaching under the authority of the elders is made clear at that moment. She's just preaching. So for me, I don't even think we have to get to that level. There are two things prohibited. And so, therefore, in this church, we don't have mixed teacher, like team teaching in, in Sunday school class. We have women teaching, but we make it very clear that it's a woman's class. Now, we don't put guards at the door, and if some man should walk in, that's his, 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 on his, his blood's on his own head, I guess. I don't know how to say that. It's like, you know, it's said women's class, all right? She should keep teaching, all right? He should leave, all right? That's, that's what I think. There's nothing wrong with her. Yeah, go ahead. It's a very good question. Very good question. John Stott taught annihilationism. Taught very well every other respect. So, you know, I think you have to decide. We have such an array of good teachers these days. If you want to be done with John Stott, then be done with John Stott. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's a challenge. Now, I, my, my PhD is in church history, and I've said this before. There is no single individual in church history whose life and doctrine I completely approve of. And that doesn't make them wrong. I say it that way because I might be wrong in my evaluation. I don't think that Spurgeon should have smoked cigars, all right? I don't think he should have been so bold about his tobacco use, et cetera. That, you know, that's just him. I, Luther, what do we even say about Martin Luther? I mean, Luther was, if, he, if a thought came to him after eating some bad meat, he wrote it down and it was published and spread all over Germany. It was, so he'd be a guy like, all right, love you on justification by faith alone and some other things. But on the Jews, horrible, horrible. I mean, it, it's just... It, at that point, you just have to say, look, it's, it doesn't matter what I think about Luther to some degree. He's dead and gone, and, and he's in heaven, and he's been adjusted. All right? <laughs> I'll never forget one of my kids. I made this statement. I've said this in front of people. I've said it a few times. Um, you know, I, I believe everyone teaches faulty at some level, including me. Well, my son heard me say that and said, then, Dad, why don't you change? It's like, well, if I knew what it was, I'd change today. I don't know what my blind spots are. They do the same thing with slavery, with Jonathan Edwards and some other things like that. It's just, it's a question that you have to, you have to ask. But I think it's, God does that to humble us all and make us realize there's only one Savior. Jesus is the only one. So you have to, you know, it says, I think it's significant, especially in that Beth Moore's been, she's been dealt with again and again. People have come to her and she's actually only expanding this approach. There's a, I, I'm, I would be concerned about following her as a leader uh, for a woman, reading her materials and all that. And JD as well. I mean, JD's a friend of mine. I just don't get it. And, and the thing that's odd about JD is he says that there are two different things prohibited in 1 Timothy 2. And yet he thinks, I don't, I don't, I don't follow his exegesis at all. 
Now, again, if you don't think exegesis is important, let me just keep it simple. It is. It is. All right. When I said, when I preached that sermon on Christ's view of scripture, I, I was just saying, this is what I'm here to do. And so I'm going to do my best to, to walk through the head, the head coverings passage and do everything I can to explain what because of the angels means. Not because I think it's the most important verse in the Bible, but I just want to show you all a methodology. Every word is God's word. They're not all equally clear or equally important, but they're all God's word. So thank you for asking that. That's a good question. All right, now here's a key thing, and we've really got to um, zero in on this. Differentiation of role does not imply inferiority of person. I, if I could put this in like size 85 font behind me, it would, I mean, that's, I don't know how much I, I, I can say this, how clearly I can say that. Different roles do not imply inferiority or superiority of person at all. And yet, we Americans are uniquely wired to not hear that and to believe the opposite. There's something about our American meritocracy. You are what you can achieve. You are what you can put on a resume. You are what your job says you are. That makes it very hard. This, that's what has driven some aspects of feminism. We'll get to that in a minute. But it does not imply fear. So let's stick with the scripture on this. Christ is submissive to his heavenly Father although they are equally God. Let's read this verse again. I do, now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and, he, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, here's, here's the thing. There's lots of theological debate over e, the eternal subordination of the Son to the Father. I, I cannot tell you how complex those theological wranglings are. Every evangelical agrees that Jesus submitted to the Father while he walked on the earth. What they don't agree is, did he submit from eternity past as he has submit now? or in the future. Now it's interesting, Paul does use the simple present. The head of Christ is God. When Paul wrote the epistle to the Corinthians, where was Jesus? In heaven, at the right hand of God. So that, that's something right there. I actually do believe in eternal sub, uh, subordination of role and eternal equality of person between the Father and the Son. I think that Jesus submitted to the Father before he was incarnate of the Virgin Mary by, by being willing to be incarnate of the Virgin Mary. He yielded to his father and came to earth. And if you look at the end, eschatologically where we're heading, this is quite remarkable. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28. I could have read the whole section here because it's talking about the resurrection in the future, es eschatologically, where are we heading? And uh, it's really amazing what Paul says. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. This is speaking of Christ. So Christ is going to hand the kingdom over to his father after he's destroyed all of his enemies. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. Now, let me stop and, and just give you a very famous verse. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's a submissive verse. He didn't usurp it. The Father gave it to him. Anyway, go back here. He says, when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. There is an eternal authority structure. And I do believe we will submit to created beings in heaven. I believe that created beings submit to one another now. 
Have you ever heard of an archangel? An archangel is literally a ruler angel. What do the non-archangels do in relation to the archangel? They submit to them. They do what the archangel tells them to do. Do you not see repeatedly a chain of command? Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. So God the Father gave Jesus the book of Revelation. He, Jesus, made it known to his servant John by sending his angel. That's a relay race from the Father to the Son to the angel to John to us. It's pretty amazing. You could even go beyond that. It says to the angel of the church at Ephesus, right? The angel that most people think is the, uh, the pastor, the messenger. The, the, he's a human person. And so there just continues that relay race. God upholds this structure, this submission, headship and submission structure, and it goes right up into the Trinity. My point here is that Christ's submissiveness does not in any way diminish his personhood or his value, not at all. He is equally God. That's the, the press of Philippians chapter 2. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. So his submissiveness to his Father did not demean him at all. It did not reduce his essential worth at all. He was every bit as much God as the Father was. But he took a submissive role. Once he became human, he was born in the ordinary way, born as uh, a baby. He grew up, and you remember that story when he was left behind in the big city by his parents? Mm -hmm. I've always thought Gabriel could have circled back and visited Mary and Joseph and said, you had one job to do, you know? <laughs> and you left your 12-year-old son in downtown Manhattan. I mean, what were you thinking? But he didn't, and uh, they went and found him, and um, Jesus gave that famous answer, I had to be about my father's business, but then he's, it says, the next verse it says, then he went back with them and was submissive to them. So again, his submission to Joseph and Mary was appropriate because he was a minor child. He was under the law. He obeyed his parents. It did not in any way diminish his essential worth as, as the God-man. So we have got to blow this thing up. We, you know, we take th every thought captive. This is the one we have to blow up. That if you are given a subordinate role, you're an employee and not the employer, you're of less worth. That's just not true. If you are a quadriplegic and can make no contributions in the physical world, except prayer, you still have essential worth and value. We've just got to blow this thing up wherever it's found. Now, men and women are equally capable of thinking logically, equally capable of making plans, articulating them pl those plans, setting examples. It's not because of essential inferiority that God has set this, uh, this up, that God assigns roles. All right, in uh, interdependence of male and female. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. So we're going to walk through that, God willing, in 1 Corinthians. But there's a beautiful interdependence. Now, here he's talking about just being born. Every man is born of a, of a woman, his mother. From then on, so it was the first was, a, was an outlier, an anomaly. It will never happen again. The first woman coming from the body of a man. But God did that in his wisdom to unite the human race, to unite the genders and say, we're working together. We're in this together. So what this means is for me in my marriage is that I should seek to be one with my wife and us together to do our family mission. And that, I, that doesn't surrender my role as, as the head, but what it does is it elevates her counsel giving, her energy, her perspective, all of those things as 
essential or necessary. So also in the local church. Though only men can be elders, only men can preach and teach other men. Uh, however, women are absolutely indispensable to the completion of the mission um, in ways that cannot really be defined. We can't really define how men and how women make their unique contributions any more than we could do that for an individual person. Everybody has an array of gifts and everybody has a role to play. And so we'll get to that in 1 Corinthians 12, God willing. We're all part of one body and there's an eye and a foot and a hand and, and all that. And every one of them is indispensable to the body. Some are weaker, some are stronger, some more presentable, some less presentable. He uses that analogy. We cover those that are less presentable with clothing and, and all that. He's got this whole analogy, but every, everyone's part of the body. And God has arranged every part just as he wanted it to be. So what I want to do is say, and how he arranged it is beautiful. It's a good thing. It's not something we're embarrassed about or squeamish or frustrated that we have to articulate or any of that. No, it's a beautiful thing. Aside from the gender question, if you have the gift of administration and not the gift of public teaching or preaching, that's a beautiful thing for you. That's what God gave you. Do it. If you have a gift of giving, financial giving, and, and that's your, you just do your gift. And don't say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body. Because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. Don't do that. Well, that specifically then fits with gender as well. Because I'm not a man, I'm less worth. That's just not true. It's not true. All right. Any questions? This is all the biblical work. I want to talk about our culture in the last few minutes, but any I have some sense of what it means, um, but I, I, I think that she is the weaker vessel is clearer to me because it's in the text than what the essence of the weakness is. I think most of us who have watched our wives go through childbirth um, are saying there's a strength there that we've never really had to show as men. Um, there is an amazing courage and boldness that's happened with women missionaries or others, uh, martyrs that have died. So defining it is harder than knowing that it's true. I think there might be a, a fragility. I, I like to think of it in terms of like marital conflicts, that I need to be very careful what I say, um, be careful with my, and I'm not saying she doesn't need to as well, but it seems that, I don't know, maybe I'm more like Tupperware and she's more like Fine China. I don't know. Just try to be careful, treat her with respect, that kind of thing. What about the says act like men? Yeah. Is that, what would that be? Be a leader. Women should act like men or men? No, 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 no. I think, I think act, no. <laughs> And it should not be translated any other way. Right. I, when the gender, gender equality translations get hold of that, they kind of they, they blow a gasket. They don't know what to do with that. <laughs> well, just understand back then, before the Industrial Revolution and before military technology made a woman who can push a, an ICBM button more, the most powerful person on earth, back then you took a sword, put on a shield, and went out and stood your ground and fought like in a, a line of scrimmage in an NFL football game. So, like, the last thing you want to do, generally, is to put a woman on, the on, a, on a shield wall. I mean, that's cruel. Because of just the, the bell curve strength, and the strongest men are out there as warriors, and she's just, for the most part, going to die. Now, I'm not saying that, that you know, women can't, can't, even then, you know, with bows and arrows, that's similar to the ICBM, and, and you can kill somebody from afar. But if you're talking about a sword in your hand and all that, and sometimes the prophets, uh, the prophets would talk, to, talk about men being like women. Uh, like the Egyptians are like women, they're, they're, you know, and what that means is when the time comes to fight, they will not be able to stand on the battlefield. That's the, probably the best I can make in that. And then, and then you think what a king was, the king was somebody like, would go out, remember with Saul, and fight our battles for us, lead us on the battlefield. So anyway, um, but yeah, the, the verse says, act like men or quit, quit you like men is the KJV. All right, let's talk now about the rise of feminism and attack on gender. So this is more our culture. We don't have a lot of time here, but let's do what we can. 
as I did research uh, for this BFL, I you know traced out the origins of the feminist movement. I think it started in the 1840s with the suffrage movement, uh, women seeking to get the vote and then extending it to certain other rights such as owning property and getting an education like men. All right, that phase of feminism, that phase of the women's uh, uh, movement, uh, ended in success. They attained their goal uh, with the passing of the 19th Amendment, uh, August 26, 1920, winning for women the right to vote. But then in the 1960s, basically as far as I can tell, the women's movement was more or less dormant for 40 years from the 1920 uh, passing of the amendment to the early 1960s. But what happened was in the early 1960s, there were a number of really hot issues of the day going on. The civil rights uh, movement was going on, the anti-war movement, the Vietnam War uh, really cranked up in the 60s. Along with that were questions of sexuality, sexual revolution, and the women's lib so-called movement, the women's liberation movement, rose up at that same time. Uh, in 1963, Betty Friedan uh, wrote a book called The Feminine Mystique. And uh, in that, she challenged the basic roles of women in society, saying that simply being a wife, ho housekeeper, and mother was not fulfilling a woman's fullest potential. She called it, quote, the problem with no name, end quote. Namely, that women, despite being married with children, living in relative comfort, post-war, World War II, America, you know, suburban America, that kind of thing, uh, as homemakers were deeply dissatisfied with their lives. Now, that may have been true for a certain percentage of American women, but it was a higher percentage after they read her book, is my guess. And all humor aside, I think the same thing's happening with transgender confusion. As it continues to be taught in public schools, there are going to be more and more kids that are confused and will come over. But there uh, seemed to have been a dissatisfaction with the standard roles. Central to this uh, growing women's liberation movement was a desire for equal pay and equal job opportunities so that women could be free from men economically. The term glass ceiling uh, came in, highlighting the frustration that women felt at limitations on upward mobility in careers because of their gender. Another strong component of this uh, movement was a desire for sexual freedom, including gay rights and abortion rights. Other issues related to the lives and experience of women came to the fore, such as rape, uh, sexual harassment, domestic violence. The more radical aspects, let me say something about abortion. Uh, the early form, like the women's suffrage, su uh, suffrage movement leaders in the, at the turn of the century, from the 19th to the 20th century, were universally what we would call pro-life, all of them. Mm -hmm. Because they felt that the man should not get off scot-free from the sexual encounter. He should stand up to his responsibilities and care for the baby, which would be a, a view we have as Christians. However, over the decades that followed, they began to see that no matter what they thought the men should do, they weren't doing it. And so they basically waved the white flag and, you know, went to the extreme of saying, okay, well, we should be able to walk away from the sexual encounter as much as the man can. And that led to abortion and tens of millions of babies. And it's, that's, there's a link there in terms of sexual freedom and, and economic freedom, the ability to just go on with your career and your life. Um, the more radical aspects of the women's movement began to be more openly hostile toward men, to develop an us versus them mentality and become openly homosexual. This led to wider and wider questioning of gender itself. Accepting of the LGBTQ people um, as able to define their own sexuality led to making a strong distinction between sex, which is biologically defined, and gender, which now is personally defined and changes I guess with the atmospheric pressure or something. I don't know how you decide uh, what your gender is and the, and the multiplication of flavors and versions of this. Quote, gender identity refers to an individual's personal sense of identity as masculine, feminine, or some combination thereof. All right, so that's out there. Um, 
there, that's just a very quick summary. There's so many other themes that could be brought up. The issue for us is, and we talked about this last week, how are these views seeping into the church? The question we have to ask, we're about to ask as I preach in 1 Corinthians um, 10 on idolatry, how is idolatry affecting my life? What idols are in my heart? So the question we have to ask on this issue today is how is feminism affecting the church in general? We talked a few minutes ago about, about the evangelical church and the SBC as well. But how is it affecting First Baptist Durham? How is it affecting us? And we have to look at it. We can't say feminism is not affecting us at all. It's not, it's not a, a gravitational pull on us. All right. It is difficult to trace out all the ways that feminism has affected the church. Obviously, we're raising some of these themes uh, of violence against women, rape, domestic abuse, and any ways in which women have not been respected as image bearers and co-heirs of heaven is helpful. I would have to say not needed. I mean, the church should have known this all along. I mean, the best thing that you can do as a husband is to honor your wife and tell her how much she means to you and how indispensable she is to your fruitfulness and happiness in, uh, in life, that God's brought her in as an equal partner with you to help you be maximally fruitful on Judgment Day, and you also for her. And there's a beautiful partnership, and once husbands and wives treat themselves, treat each other like that, we see the same thing from the elders in the church, that we recognize the indispensable and beautiful role of women in the life of the church, Yet at the same time, we're going to uphold the, the structures that God's given us and have men um, as elders and leaders in the church and also have men teaching and preaching on Sunday morning. And we're going to have uh, the head covering. Just to tell you where I'm heading with that, I think there is a timeless principle with a cultural manifestation or many cultural manifestations. The timeless principle is male leadership in the home and in the church. And that needs to be kind of very clear when outsiders walk in that men lead here in a loving way, in a Christ-like way, etc. All right, <clears throat> so where are we? Um, however, Christians should acknowledge we never should have needed, all right, said that, liberal Christianity has embraced women in all roles in the church, priest, pastor, leader, president, etc., without any concern for bibl biblical texts. I went to Gordon-Conwell, which is a bastion of evangelical feminism. Um, A.J. Gordon laid out a, a very strong argument for women in the ministry. That's generally what's called women in ministry, which bothers me because it implies if you're not in vocational ministry or preacher, you're not in any ministry at all, men or women. And that's just not true. Every Christian should have a ministry. Every Christian should have a spiritual gift ministry that you just develop and do. You should know what your spiritual gifts are and develop them and do them a lot. That's Romans 12. If your gift is X, then do X. Everyone has that. But some are called to the unique role of preaching and teaching. That's a small percentage even of men. Um, but every, every woman should. But let's just accept that phrase for now, women in ministry, women in vocational ministry. A.J. Gordon said, how can you look a woman in the eye who feels strongly led by God, strongly led by the Holy Spirit to preach and tell her no? Well... I could be humorous right now. You say, this is how you do it. Um, but I, I think, let me give you a story uh, from Charles Spurgeon. A man came up to Spurgeon, um, and at that point, the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit was the most famous pulpit in the world. His sermons were printed all over the world, being read. Thousands of people came to hear him preach. This man came up. Spurgeon didn't know him. said, the Lord has told me that I'm to preach at the Met Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit this Sunday. <laughs> Maybe that's what he did. I don't know. <laughs> but he said, um, that's fine. When the Lord tells me, then you shall be permitted to do so. <laughs> so there's a stewardship, okay? Above that, though, are texts. It has nothing to do with what I feel. It has to do with the text we've been reading. That's what's more important than what I feel or what I permit. 
So fundamentally, what you do is you say, dear sister, I don't think you're hearing that from God. Let me show you why. And these are texts that I think the Lord has laid out. And just stand on the word of God, not on how you feel or on your own, frankly, uh, your own sinful demeanors. What really matters is the scripture. Anyway, evangelical feminism has arisen, claiming to believe the inspiration authority of all scripture, but also asserting that verses that restrict women's roles based on gender have been misunderstood because of sexist biases. It asserts that patriarchal and sexist views have, been, have to be cleared away, and we have to embrace full equality of the sexes as Christ intended. What I've perceived is that evangelical feminism is generally a transitional state to one or the other. Either you're going to embrace the scripture and its teachings, or you're just going to be a secular feminist. And Gordon Conwell has been on a decaying orbit since then in some significant ways. There's other issues going on in Gordon Conwell. But uh, John Piper and Wayne Grudem edited a book called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and I would commend that as a strong resource for these topics. So, All right, we need to stop. Let me close in prayer.